Welcome to Trainers Talking Truths. This is an ISSA podcast dedicated to exploring the fitness industry and uncovering the whys and hows of personal training. To do that, we'll talk directly to the industry experts and certified trainers. We'll dig into fitness programming, business tactics, nutrition, and more. You'll even hear from current training clients who offer insight from the other side. We've got the fitness industry covered, so turn up the volume and enjoy the drive. Hello, world, and welcome back for another ISSA podcast, Trainers Talking Truths. It's your co-host, Jenny Liebel, here with my favorite co-host for the podcast anyway, Dan, the man Duran. How are you, Dan? I am great, Jenny. It's 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 a good day. I've got my, my science hat on today, Jenny, and uh, ready to take some notes because our guest today is amazing. And I'm just going to cut right to the chase and introduce Dr. Mike T. Nelson. Uh, Mike is a research fanatic who specializes in metabolic flexibility and heart rate variability, HRV. I'm sure you've heard that. He's also an online trainer, an adjunct professor, an associate professor at the Carrick Institute. He's a presenter, and he's a creator of the Flex Diet Certification, which I'm sure we'll talk about. Fun fact, he's a kiteboarder. We need to learn more about that. And here's the best part. He's not only a heavy metal enthusiast. He just shared with us before we click record that he was a, a, a DJ. And you're going to know why here in a minute when you hear his voice, but uh, very much into heavy metal. So we have a very well-rounded individual. Welcome, Mike. Hi, welcome. Thank you both for having me. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. Yes. Thank you for taking time out of your busy day. Because, yeah, you do a lot of things. And we're super excited to hear about a lot of the things that you're into. Um, but first, I must know more about this kiteboarding. Please do tell. Yeah, it's it's super fun. And for people who are wondering what the hell it is, imagine having like an upside down, kind of looks like a parachute thing with four lines that are about 100 feet long attached to a bar. And when you can do it mostly on the water, so you have a board that's like a, a hybrid between a wake surfing board or a surfboard. It's kind of, you can go either direction. And it's super fun. So you just use the power of the wind, moving the kite through the air to right across the water. And if you do it right, you can put the kite above you and it'll actually pick you up off the water. You can sail through the air. And if you do it correctly, you can actually land pretty soft. If you <laughs> screw that part up, you kind of get dropped out of the sky like a sack of potatoes. And that part really sucks. <laughs> yeah, about that. That sounds fun though. That's interesting. How did you get into kiteboarding? I got into it years ago. I started windsurfing because for years I always wanted to windsurf. I graduated from my master's and a buddy of mine said, hey, we're doing this windsurf trip down to the Caribbean. I've never been to the Caribbean, went down there. And another buddy of mine is like, hey, they have this new thing called uh, kiteboarding. This is 2005. So the technology was really horrible at that time. <laughs> and so he took a lesson. And all I saw was him getting what they call teabagged, where you get pulled up in the air and just dropped <laughs> in the water, pulled up in the air, dropped in the water, like all the way across this bay. The boat picks him up, drops him off on the other side, gets teabagged all the way across the bay again. I asked him, I said, hey, Rob, how was the, the kiteboarding thing? He's like, oh, man, I'm so sore. I'm like, well, was it any fun? Like, did you get to ride or do anything? He's like, no, I just hurt. So I'm like, <laughs> OK, I'm going to. Wait a couple of years with that. And then I saw another video like two years after that of the technology had got a little bit better. And I started doing that in uh, 2006. Um, that was right around the time they had technology a year after I started where they had D-Power. 
meaning you could let the bar out and the kite would just kind of fall out of the sky and you could stop. So previous to that, there was no stopping. You had to do what they call ride up wind, which if you're new, you don't know how to do any of that. So learning was kind of a real pain in the butt. So it's gotten a lot better over the years in terms of technology. It's still a very, you know, steep, steep learning curve, but yeah, just riding across the water, using the power from the wind is great. And uh, yeah, doing jumps are are fun. So I hit my goal of doing a 20-foot jump this past uh, spring. So go up in the air 20 feet and then land about five seconds later, which if you're doing an extreme sport or anything like that, like you're in the air for five seconds feels like a, a freaking like eternity. But yeah. Uh, yeah, super fun. I bet. Oh, my goodness. That's awesome. Well, keep us posted on your milestones for this. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> So can you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself, of course, your massive amount of education and how it led to so much work that you do in the fitness field? Yeah, I started off like I ended up doing God, 18 years of college full time, which I wouldn't recommend anybody wow. do that. Uh, so I did my undergrad was a Bachelor of Arts in Natural Science. I just loved anatomy. So I literally wandered into anatomy and physiology as an undergrad and at the school at St. Scholastica in Duluth, Minnesota, they had actual cadavers they got every quarter. Or their undergrad classes, which is extremely rare. Mm -hmm. I was like, oh, wow, like to, you know, see the models and, you know, someone did the dissections for us. At the time, I didn't know, I don't know, I didn't know what to do with any of that information. So I ended up doing a dual degree program. So I got my Bachelor of Arts from there. And then I went to Michigan Tech to do engineering. I decided to do a master's program there. So I did a master's in mechanical engineering, biomechanics, looking at some heat transfer stuff. Graduated and said I was never going back to school again. Started working for a medical device company and like 2005, I got my NSCA certification, started training people, decided to go back to school for a PhD in biomedical engineering, but I didn't do my research through that. I just finished all the classwork and it was kind of hard to get funding. I remember sitting in a class uh, on MRIs because they had to take an electrical engineering elective and I'm sitting there and the professor comes in and he goes, okay. Now we're going to derive all the equations used in an MRI. And he's like writing all this stuff on the board. <laughs> and I'm looking around. I'm sitting here with, you know, master's, PhD students in you know, physics and mathematics. And they're all just feverishly writing all this stuff down. And I poke the guy next to me like, hey, do you know what's going on? He's like, no. And he's just like <laughs> frantically writing stuff down. And what I found out later was there was a math prereq that I, I didn't have. Because I assume like math ended after calculus four, it turns out it doesn't. And so at that point, I'm like, okay, I either survive this class somehow and pass and then finish this degree, or I'm out of here and I go somewhere else. And so I left that after five years and went to the PhD program in exercise physiology um, and ended up uh, finishing that. And like I said, started working with clients in 2005, 2006, did the thing where I worked in the gym as a trainer for a while. Uh, which was great. I mean, I liked it, but I also realized if for my personality, if I had to be on the floor like 30 to 40 hours a week, I, I would jump off a bridge somewhere. <laughs> I just couldn't, as an extreme introvert, the amount of interactions with humans was just a little too much for me, but I love the problem solving aspect. I loved all the physiology. I loved all the other things around it. So I ended up pivoting later to, to doing online and just kind of went more down that path. Nice. Well, at wow. least you knew it, that about yourself. <laughs> yeah, you, you learned through experience, right? I mean, and yeah. it was good. Like, I'm I'm totally glad I did it because I think the amount of experience you have with someone who's like never squatted before, even like just basic human movement patterns. Like at the mm -hmm. time, I didn't, 
you don't know what you don't know, right? I assume yeah. well, you tell someone to squat and they squat. Well, no, it doesn't work that way. <laughs> Shocker. <laughs> I'm still trying to get get that 18 years of college thing. You right? Know, uh, my gosh, that's amazing. So yeah, being, you know, research, education, I want to hit on that for a minute. Yeah. We, we, we've experienced um, in our industry, in all industries probably, where folks are are getting their information from a lot of different sources. And some folks call it like bro science. Uh, we've heard the term Insta Trainer. Here at ISSA, you know, we create uh, research-based uh, education for people to learn. But a lot of folks choose not to invest in good education that's research-based because they find it for, quote-unquote, free out there on the internet. Now, you know based on your experience and your own research, what makes for good and bad information? What advice would you give our listeners to, you know, uh, to suss that out and find the best, most relevant and practical information to educate themselves with? In other words, not so good. Yes, good. What advice would you give them? Yeah, my advice, if I had to go back again, and I talked to my buddy, uh, Dr. Jade Tata about this too, is, both of us kind of agreed that we would go back and pay for any solid system, you know, whether that's through the ISSA, obviously I'm biased to have my own certification, you know, but people that are looking at it and using research, but they're also making it applicable to people for what they actually need. And they're also making it into a system. So it's not like just this one study or just this one technique. How does that technique, how does that study fit into the overall kind of hierarchy of what you're actually teaching. And just, you know, I don't even care what system people use as long as it's a valid system that has, you know, a good reputation, uses research that gets results for people. Just get really, really good at that system. And you can go like super far with that, you know, and as you do more reps, yeah, then maybe you modify stuff, maybe you tweak stuff, maybe you read this study and you want to try this, or you add another certification or you want more nutrition info or supplement info, whatever. But I think I I know I'm guilty of this. I spent too long trying to feel like I had to piece everything together myself, but I didn't have anything to stick it to. It was all this random stuff and the amount of mistakes I made and the poor clients I trained at first and all that stuff. I think I could have dramatically shortened that learning curve by just buying into one system and executing that system and getting really good at that. And then going on and trying to figure out, okay, what am I going to do next? Um, so for me, later on, one of the things I had was, okay, for me personally, how do I know I'm at a certain level with a certain information? Like what are my internal metrics? So for me, if I'm doing something new, like I just started doing some hands-on work like 10 years ago, my internal thing was, okay, can I, who am I going to follow? I'm going to pick one or two people and learn as much as I possibly can from them to shorten my learning curve. I'm going to learn from some other people. Okay, then can I charge someone to pay me only for that particular thing? Can I charge people money to pay me only to do hands-on soft tissue work on them, for example? Cool. Okay, so that justifies that my skill level is at a certain area because people are paying me for it. They're not paying me for anything else. And then can I potentially teach for one of the organizations? Cool. Once I can do that, again, this is just for me personally. I feel like, okay, now what can I add and kind of, you know, mix around in it? Oh, maybe I can add this or add this, you know, neurologic component or these other things um, instead of trying to get really good at everything, not necessarily applying it, 
not knowing really how good I was because there's no verification to determine that other than I think I'm okay. <laughs> you yeah. know, that gets to be messy. Like I remember Tom Meyer saying this once. He's like, if you have a really good chef, they understand all the things that go into like, say you're making a really good stew and they can put weird stuff in there that seems odd, but in their skill level, it makes perfect sense. It turns out great. He's like, if you're not a chef and you're not very good and you just throw a bunch of stuff into a pod, you have like shit stew that nobody wants to buy. You have a whole bunch of stuff in there. You put in a lot of effort, but end result, it didn't really turn out so good. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. And I love what you're saying about picking a system and then getting really good at it. And you yeah. make a great point, Mike. A lot of people don't. They're like you said, no. they piece things together or they try a system and they're like, I don't know if this works. Oh, wait, this is the next biggest, newest thing. And yep. then they jump over to that and then they do this. And that, so they don't have something consistently that they're delivering. Um, would you say that a lot of these systems are research-based? Obviously they should be, right? Scientifically based, but would they find it like in a journal or is it like, are there other resources that you would tell a student or a, a certified professional, like go look at this to find out what actually works? Where would you send them? Yeah, I internally kind of divided into research, right? So research, I think it's definitely worth your time and effort to pick up the skill of reading primary research. Mm-hmm. Go to PubMed, you don't have to be a wizard in statistics, but you may have to take some continuing education just to understand how to read a research study. Right. Because that is a skill level. Luckily, you know, when you do a PhD, that gets beaten into your head and it's expensive and a long process. Definitely not, I would, something I'd recommend to everyone, but it's useful because you leave with the skill set of being able to re- read research. What are the pros? What are the cons? What are the limits? I think you can kind of learn some of that yourself. So you can read primary research and you don't have to trust what expert Bob said on the internet. And even, you know, some experts, are not always correct either, or they're not talking about the same context you're thinking about, or it's a 60 second clip and there's no way they can cover the whole research study in 60 seconds. There's always going to be kind of limits to it. And then the same thing on the experiential side, like go intern with someone, talk to someone who's, you know, been doing it for many years. Like I was lucky at the University of Minnesota. I, I got to hang out with uh, Cal Dietz a lot. And so I would wander over to his gym, be like, hey, buddy, what's going on? And sit on his couch and ask him weird questions. And most <laughs> of the time, you know, he understands the research, but 90% of the time he's like, oh yeah, we did this experiment, you know, like 10 years ago, I had this $50,000 squat plate and we did this and that. And you know, like he has all the data of different experiments that he's run over time. And, you know, some of the stuff initially I heard, I was like, I don't know, man, that sounds batshit crazy. Like him telling me that, oh yeah, collagen, you take collagen before and it helps with soft tissue stuff. I'm like, what? The collagen's a horrible protein, whatever. And five years later, there's some good research from Keith Barr's lab and other places showing that, holy crap, he was actually correct, right? So I think if you find someone who has a lot of experience and is getting good results, they may not necessarily know why, but you know that they're getting a valid result from it. And if you can go and read primary research and try to determine okay, this study showed this, but it was in this population, that you could kind of merge those two worlds and end up with something pretty decent. Yeah, but that's the key. Like you just said, you're finding the results, but what population was tested, right? Totally. Was a certain age group, was a certain gender, was a certain demographic? Like you have to understand that, and that comes from the research specifically. So Yeah, and what are the limits of that? And, mm-hmm. and know when you're overextending it. Like I don't mm-hmm. have any problem with someone who's saying, you know, hey, this study was done in this. We think it may help this population. Cool. Okay. That means you understand the limits of that research. There is no other research on, you know, elite level athletes, but 
we're going to assume that this transfers. Okay, cool. Versus, oh, this study was done in, you know, one-eyed ferret, so it's going to transfer <laughs> to my elite track athletes. Well, I don't know, man. That's a pretty big leap. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, there's a lot of studies out there done on like rats, for example, yep. or things like that. I'm like, mm, I don't think that really translates just yet. Maybe, maybe wait just a no. little bit. <laughs> yeah. And a lot of, unfortunately, the, the reality is I get why people do animal research. There's a time and a place for it, but mm-hmm. most of it doesn't transfer to humans. Uh, mm-hmm. But some of it does. So you can't say it's never going to, but the odds are, eh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Now you have a metabolic flexibility certification that you've created. You mentioned it mm-hmm. earlier. We want to hear more about it called the flex diet. You also have flex diet podcast. Phenomenal, by the way, favorite episode thank you. of Adam Bornstein. Love it. Oh yeah. I love um, that. I've listened to it like five times. Oh, um, but thank you. Can you. Yeah. Great podcast, by the way, guys, we'll put the link in the description episode. Just so you guys can check it out. Um, hundreds of episodes, by the way, over 200 episodes. So plenty mm-hmm. to listen to. Um, but can you describe for our listeners what metabolic flexibility is and how does this apply to the real world? Yeah, I mean, I got lucky that that ended up being my research topic. So I started looking at this like 15 years ago when I started my PhD. And as you guys know, in the fitness world, especially for nutrition, it's always like, if you want to write a good diet book, right? And this is an Adam's book, which is great. It's just, okay, gluten's the devil or carbs are the devil or high fat's the only way to go keto for life. It's, you have to pick like one camp and you have to say it works for everything. Like you just disregard context and there's your book. And everybody knows who's worked with anyone that that just doesn't apply. Like, again, the context matters. Is it for a healthy person? Is it an athlete? Is it a diseased population? And when you look at it, you really are only using two main fuels primarily. You're going to use carbohydrates. And you're going to use fats like, yes, lactate, ketones, all other stuff matters. But those are the primary two. The metabolic flexibility is how well on one end of the spectrum can you use carbohydrates? How well on the other end of the spectrum can you use fat? And then how well can you transition back and forth between those two? So to me, that's a much better theory because it actually respects like how your physiology is actually working versus saying, oh, this is good. This is bad. Too much protein is horrible. Your kidneys are going to fly out of the other side of your spine. Like all these like little myths that just never seem to die or go away. Yeah. So how do you use that concept when you're like coaching a client? Is it like we're looking at the foods that they're eating? Is it we're looking at the intensities that they're exercising at? Is it a combination? Yeah, it's actually a combination of both. <laughs> so one of the ways you would look at it is if you are programming some high intensity interval training or like a heavy strength session, the main fuel for that is going to be carbohydrates. So your next thought would be, okay, how do I make sure the athlete has enough carbohydrates, either potentially stored ahead of time, there's some storage in the liver, there's some storage in the muscles, muscle glycogen, um, or I'm going to maybe provide them through their dietary approach, more carbohydrates on that particular day, because that's going to help with their you know performance in the gym or doing their intervals or whatever they're doing. The flip side is if you want to use more fat, lower to moderate intensity exercise, walking, just hanging out, uh, fat's actually a much better fuel source for that. Your body can more efficiently create a lot more energy. Mm -hmm. Um, However, it just takes longer. So if you said, well, I'm only ever going to use fat, you know, you're going to give up, the research says eight to maybe 10% of your absolute speed and power, like right off the top end. If you don't care about that, then it doesn't matter. But I would argue most people probably care about that. So again, each fuel has its sort of range of what it's best for. And once you understand that, it just makes it programming better. 
And I have a concept in the Flex Diet Cert I just call macro matching. So if you want a, what I call a U-stress model, so E-U-S-T-R-E-S-S, you want to maximize performance and help get better body composition. If you're doing strength training in high-intensity intervals, you'd want more carbohydrates available. If you're doing a lower to moderate intensity, you want to train the body to use fat at a much higher intensity. So both ends of the spectrum are appropriate. They're just used at different times. We're back at it for another ISSA rapid review. Christine had this to say about our certified personal training course. I really enjoyed this course and I would recommend it to others looking to get certified. Well, we're glad you enjoyed it, Christine. And thanks for being with us. Love that. Very interesting. And I followed everything that you were saying. That makes perfect sense. Oh, cool. Um, and the strategies, it depends. It really depends. Like the average person, like you, like you said, it may not matter so much. Um, but for sure. those who want something to do something specific, this is where you start getting a little bit more specific with them. Yeah. And again, like you said, that's a spectrum, right? So even for general population, my bias is I'm still looking at performance because that's the main driver that's going to drive adding more muscle. It's going to help keep them more motivated. It's literally going to burn more calories. It's going to move them in the direction they want to go. Most of you are looking at body composition changes. So if you have more muscle, less fat, and it's going to help with that. Now, their level of performance may not be the same as an elite level athlete, mm -hmm. and they probably don't need to be as particular and specific with stuff. Uh, but what I like is the concept is literally the same. It's just scaled back down to where is appropriate for that person. Yeah, I love that. And in your certification, do you give the people going through it like tools specifically on how to figure out where they're at, like resources, forms, whatever they need? Yeah, that was the, for the third, the hardest issue I had is that, again, what system do I put it in? Because one of the issues mm -hmm. I had is I went to a lot of these different gyms and I was doing a lot more speaking to them before COVID. And so you go like to, you know, at the time, big, you know, CrossFit gyms. I'm like, hey, cool. Like who's doing your nutrition stuff? And 90% of the time, it wasn't just CrossFit gyms, it was most gyms would be like, oh, well, we don't know what to do for nutrition. So it's um, keto for 30 days. And then it's, fasting the next 30 days. And then it's, I don't know, whatever macro thing is cool. The next 30 days, which is all these short challenges. Yeah. And there was no system, there's no periodization. There was not a lot of thought because coaching nutrition is generally pretty difficult. So I was like, okay, so, Hmm, could I come up with a system where you could take one person <clears throat> from that gym, train them, have them work with, you know, a hundred people in that gym on a system that was semi-customizable approach. <clears throat> Everybody would get a little bit different, but it would tell them where to start. And the main issue I had with that was trying to determine, okay, so out of all the interventions to do, <clears throat> how do you determine what is the first intervention that they would do? So for example, I had a lot of conversations with clients about sleep. You know, especially the last few years, sleep has become a lot more sexy. And on the physiology side, Cool, I can pull up reams of data to justify like why sleeping more is going to help your performance, your body comp, metabolic flexibility, all sorts of stuff. But as you guys know, having a conversation with a client on day one about sleep, I, I'd rather pound my head against the wall <laughs> because at the end of the day, it comes down to, okay, so we went through your whole schedule, Bob, you're sleeping four and a half hours a night. No matter how much we optimize your quality of sleep, like you're, you're just going to need more sleep, right? And it comes down to, oh, you know, those two hours I hang out and watch Netflix at night, you're, you're telling me to go to bed. Kind of, yeah, you're not going to put up your kids for adoption. You're not going to, you know, drop <laughs> your job. You still want to train. And so it became this very difficult conversation. 
And what I realized was I came up with something called a coaching leverage, which was the physiologic impact times the client's ability to change. And that score would then determine what would be the first item you'd work on. So sleep on a one to 10 scale, very high physiology, like probably a nine, maybe you could argue a 10. Like client's ability to change was like a freaking one. It, it's a very much a long-term you know, play where you can make changes, but it's not the easiest thing to start with. Where protein, I'll tell people, especially for body comp and performance, hey, did you know you can eat more of this one thing and lose weight? I'm like, what? I can eat more of something and lose weight? This is crazy. And you took a little education, but they're like, oh, cool, I can definitely do this. So physiologic, maybe a nine. Client's ability to change was like a nine. It was rather easy to get them to do in terms of all the other changes they could do. So the aggregate score for protein was much higher and it ended up being like the first intervention and sleep ended up being <clears throat> number eight in terms of interventions. So I set it up where obviously protein is gonna be the first intervention you're gonna work on. So that way, when you have a new client, you're kind of rigging the system in their favor. Right, you're trying to get them to do the thing that's paradoxically easier for them to do, mm -hmm. but you know is also going to get them closer to their goal. So it's, it's physically going to move their physiology to where you want it. And then the coach looks like a rock star. They're like, "Oh wow, this is great! Everything's working so good." And then you can kind of work your way into you know items that are a little bit more difficult from there. Oh, that is genius! Because so many people it try is. and force that sleep. Like if that was it, yeah, yeah. Like, no, let's let's focus on your. I sleep. do that for sleep, years. Sleep. And you'll spend three months, four months, five months, you know, focusing on sleep and you didn't get anything else accomplished versus going about it the other way. I love that, Mike. Uh, that, that is an awesome equation. I've never heard yeah. it. And I absolutely want to reshare it and give you full credit. Of oh, course, sure. Because yeah, yeah. That is awesome. That is awesome. Thank you. So, you know, uh, Mike, we knowing that, that we were going to have you as a, as a guest today and uh, what, 18 years of education. A lot yeah. of research and a lot of studying of research. We thought, you know what? Let's come up with some quick hitters, just some some curveball questions sure. that that Dr. Mike can help us with. So the first actually ties into what you were just talking about. Can you expand just a bit on why protein is so important for recovery, for weight loss? Fill in the blank. How much? Best sources, best supplements, etc. So usually the question people want to know first is how much. <clears throat> if you look at the research, and I published some book chapters and stuff on this too. In the US, US system, not metric, it's about 0.7 grams per pound of body weight. Mm -hmm. So if you're a 200 pound mammal, it's 140 grams of protein per day. Now you can go higher, right? You can go up to the one gram per pound of body weight if you want to really encompass, you know, elite level athletes in the 99th percentile or you have someone who is, you know, really trying to, you know, lose some fat. So you want to hedge your bets that way. That That's great. Uh, the benefit is it helps with muscle recovery, something called muscle protein synthesis. You're taking amino acids, you're shoving them into muscle tissue to become bigger and stronger. Most of that is based on complete proteins. As much as this offends the vegans, if anything had eyeballs on it, <laughs> it's going to be a complete protein. Uh, there are other vegan sources that, that can be uh, useful. It just takes a little bit more time and effort. In terms of supplements, um, there are some good vegan protein powders on the market now. Uh, they're much better now than they used to be. Mm -hmm. So you can get some mixes that are pretty much a complete protein there, are pretty close. Uh, whey protein is good. Um, egg, any other complete protein sources are, are also good for that. Um, it also helps with body comp because it's, I wouldn't say it's impossible, but it's almost literally impossible to turn excess protein into fat. 
Uh, so Dr. Jose Antonio did a study on this where he had guys eating up to 400 grams of protein per day. And they compared them to another group eating 200 grams per day. And there's some criticism because it is a self-report study. Trying to eat 400 grams of protein every day for weeks on end. I have my doubts that they really hit that amount, but they're eating truckloads of protein. And what they found is comparing the two groups, when you go from 200 grams to 400 grams, you didn't add more muscle, like you didn't get better from that aspect of the no saw no benefit in recovery, but you didn't add any body fat either. Like there was literally no difference in body comp between those two groups. Um, so you can go really high on protein and it helps with satiety, gives people you know something to eat, which is kind of an issue at times. Um, and it's virtually impossible for it so far on the data we have to be turned into body fat. Interesting. So there's somebody out there who's going to be like, all right, I'm just going to eat protein for the rest of my life and not eat anything yeah. else. Don't do that. Yeah. <laughs> we're just talking like, we're just talking about within reason. Using right, right. Yeah. And <laughs> at some point, right. And the question then is, was that going to be unhealthy? They did all sorts of kidney markers on them. They looked at microalbumin. Mm-hmm. They looked at actual damage to the kidneys. So far in healthy individuals, we haven't seen any reputable study that I know of that shows any damage to kidneys with high levels of protein. Um, you will see more work done by the kidneys if you look at something called uh, GFR and other markers, creatinine. But you could argue, like, if I do bicep curls, my bicep's going to get a little bit bigger, and it did more work also. Uh, there's an interesting study that actually showed some of the kidneys actually hypertrophy. They actually got a little bit bigger. Mm. Again, just probably oh, responding oh. to total workload. But there was no indication that there was any damage actually done uh, to them. Hey, girls, there's people out there that you, we used to think that way, right? That used oh, to be totally. Thing, like, oh, don't eat too much protein. It's going to hurt your kidneys. But I love that there's research supporting the fact that that's not necessarily true. Yeah, correct. Usually it's other factors or like risk for disease and other stuff that most people have to worry about. All right, next one. What are three simple ways to measure training progress? Ooh. I like just old school performance. So if I had to pick three, I would say, can you do more volume? Right. So literally the amount of work you did in the gym, could you lift a heavier load? Right. So percentage of your one rep max. And then three, could you do more work in less time, which would be Mm -hmm. density. So when I write programs, I literally just kind of cycle those three main things. If it's some higher level athlete, you might do some velocity-based stuff, that type of thing. But you can get really far doing that. And if you are tracking that, at some point, you literally have to get stronger and add more muscle. Like, you know, this rate will be different for everyone. Um, But so I'll even do for myself, like, if performance is my goal for some grip stuff, I did nine sets the other day of my main lift. And I literally got two more reps at that weight than I ever have in my entire life. The week before I got two more reps than I ever did before in my entire life. Right. And, you know, again, you're, you're doing these highly specific things. So you have time to kind of play with it. But I know at some point that will transfer to my one RM. I don't know when per se, but at some point, if I can do that much volume and it's a high quality volume, it will transfer to getting stronger. Um, so I think if people just kind of focus on those three and keep notes on those for their main lifts, uh, they can go like really, really far just doing that. I love right. it. I love it. Now you mentioned, and this is actually one of, because we'd, we'd heard you talk about this before and we had it teed up as a rapid fire question and you mentioned grip strength. Mm-hmm. So can you share with our listeners why that's important? 
There's a couple of reasons. It's there's some very interesting research showing that grip strength is associated with longevity. So if you look at longevity, uh, I think these are mostly Scandinavian studies, VO2 max, lower body strength slash muscle mass, because they, they kind of are associated in those studies. And three would be grip strength. Now, you could argue in those studies, grip strength was more of a marker of overall or potentially upper body strength. Yeah, that might, might be fair. Um, my bias, although I don't have any data on this yet, is I do think it's probably a two-way street. I would bet a fair amount of money that if you have a stronger grip, it will probably translate to a longer life. And then also grip strength is just the interface of your upper body lifts. Your feet are the interface of lower body or full body lifts. Do you imagine if you've got a, a fancy Formula One car and you put like really crappy tires on it, your performance is just going to kind of suck. Um, and a lot of people I find grip strength is much lower than what I would expect for the lifts that they're doing. So just increasing it just a little bit and they don't have to go crazy. They can just do some basic stuff and all of a sudden their lifts go up. Um, you know, one guy I worked with years ago, he was stuck at a 585 deadlift for a single and he was using a mixed grip and I could see that his hand was opening up on the lift. And I'm like, Hey, you know, I, you know, you've been stuck at this lift for almost like a year I think it's your grip strength that's limiting you. It's like, no, 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 no. And, you know, he keeps doing stuff. Four months later, he still hasn't hit his goal. He's like, okay, let me do this grip stuff thing. And we just did some basic stuff for him for like three months. And he hit 605, I think, for an easy single. Oh, wow. Um, wow. And if you've ever had the inverse experience where you take and you put a pair of like fat grips on a deadlift bar, or you just go double overhand or use an axle with like a two-inch diameter, and you go to deadlift something that is well within your capacity to deadlift on a normal bar or a mixed grip, if you can't hold on to it, it is the weirdest sensation that you literally can't move. Like your hips don't come up early. Like literally like nothing happens. Like you're neurologically just shut down at that point. <laughs> and so the first time I did that, I was like, oh, and it's the weirdest feeling to, you know, at the time I just did like 205 on an axle I couldn't do, but my deadlift at the time was like 405. And I'm like, what? This is so weird, you know, but yeah. So just doing that, I think you have a good appreciation. Last component, everybody's had those days where they go and touch a bar and their first lift, they're like, oh yeah, this was a, this is going to be a good day. And normally they're correct. I would argue their grip strength is probably a little bit better that day. And they're feeling that sensation of being secure to the bar that is actually translating into a higher level of performance. Okay. That's what I was going to ask too. Cause I'm a strength coach for college level volleyball. Yes. And I remember reading some research like a year ago about grip strength and physical recovery or readiness to train, especially yep. when they train in the morning. So I actually bought a grip strength tester just off of Amazon. Yeah. Um, and I asked my athletes to do a baseline and then every day, um, if they felt like it, but at least once a week, I had them test their grip sync and compare it to their norm or their, their baseline. And if it was low, then we would back some things off or maybe adjust. And if it was higher at normal, um, then they were ready to go. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I agree. It's a super easy way to auto-regulate your stuff. People have used vertical jump. They've used all sorts of metrics. Um, if you want to take that experiment and get even more crazy, we did this five years ago the grip strength will actually even change a little bit depending upon the lift that they're executing. What we found was if the lift was quote unquote better for their nervous system on that day, their grip strength would stay the same or get a little bit better. If it was not as good for their physiology that day it would actually go down a little bit. 
and people have had this experience, right? So have you ever done a lift where you're filming it or your coach is watching it and you're like, you know, biomechanically, that looks good. And you ask the athlete, like, how did that feel? They're like, felt like dog shit. Like it felt horrible. <laughs> I don't know why it just felt bad, right? Versus other lifts might be very, very slow, but it felt okay. Like you could kind of grind through it and it felt okay. So I do think there is a fair amount of variability there. Mm-hmm. And it makes sense that if you are doing lifts that are more in tune with your physiology that day, your performance will go up a little bit from that. And then you would want to work on those lifts more often to kind of maximize that. Love that. Really good info. Last question about grip strength, though. Mm-hmm. I know somebody is like, again, yelling at their speaker, throwing things. Uh, the use of grips or straps. Thoughts? I mean, I think they can be useful. There's just a tool like, you know, wearing a belt, like wearing anything else. Um, mm-hmm. I do think they can be overused, though. Um, so one of the things I see is that people are always using straps for heavy lifts. The first thing I have them do is just not use them. I'm like, mm-hmm. oh, my God, but my lifts are so much lower. I'm like, yeah, but they'll come back up or use them on your last set or use them on your last uh, form of exercises. So, again, I think they can be useful. But I think they can just be like a belt. Like you see those dudes who go to the gym who are like yeah. bench pressing a plate per side and they still have their belt on and then they're doing creature <laughs> curls with their belt yeah. on. And yeah. you're like, what are you doing, man? Like you, you don't need a belt for that. Like, I don't think you're doing the thing you think you're doing. Um, and over time, you're, I would argue you're potentially increasing your risk of injury because you're overriding one of those components that that should actually start to shut you down. If you've ever worked with someone who's had a shoulder injury, measure their grip strength. It goes in the toilet mm-hmm. instantly. And it makes sense, right? Because if I can't hold on to an object, the odds are I'm not going to do more damage to my shoulder. So I think that it is kind of this, this feedback type thing. And I do get a little nervous of people always using uh, straps. And you know, potentially, I think that may increase their risk of injury over time. I agree. And yeah, I definitely related to the belt for sure. Uh, Mike, I'm just letting you know, I could ask you questions all day. I'm pretty sure you have things to do. (laughs) Yeah. So where can our listeners learn more about you and learn from you? Sure. Uh, The best place is the main website is just MikeTNelson.com. You can go there, you can get onto the newsletter, like probably 90% of my content goes out to the newsletter. It's just free to sign up. Uh, certification is at flexdiet.com, F-L-E-X-D-I-E-T.com. And then the podcast is a Flex Diet podcast. And I do have some stuff that goes on on Instagram, which is just uh, Dr. Mike T. Nelson. Awesome. Yes, definitely check out the podcast, you guys. You have a lot of information floating around out there. And I love that um, because everybody loves free stuff, right? Free information. Yeah, plenty of free stuff. (laughs) (laughs) Very nice. Well, thank you so much for being here with us, Mike. This has been so great. Yeah, thank you so much for all the great questions. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. And Dan, do you have any takeaways or last minute things to talk about? I'm going to keep it short. I did have a story to tell, but I'll tell them when we're done recording. So I'll, I'll spare the <laughs> listeners another dance story. Uh, but what I do want to uh, you know, restate is when Dr. Mike said, look for a system. It, it shouldn't be flavor of the day. I've uh, yeah. uh, been in fitness for quite a while, managed trainers, watch trainers in many gyms as, as all of, the, all of you know, our guests here have, um, as well as many of you, if not most of you listeners. And what is very common is a trainer will learn a new exercise, whether it's from a conference, 
that they've went to a YouTube video and Instagram and every one of their clients is doing it the next day. Maybe good, maybe bad. Not here to say it's right or wrong, but the question is, is it part of a system? Is it part of something that's that's bolted together to create function or to basically, you know, uh, achieve a goal? So if it's not part of a system, think really hard about why you're doing it. Yeah. And I would piggyback on that. Not only learn a system, but like Mike said, get really, really good at it. Know all the ins and outs of it before you start changing anything or adopting new things. Like get really, really good at that one thing and maybe even be known for that one thing. Um, I think that's a really cool idea that a lot of people forget about. They don't do it because they're on to the next thing and they do it too quickly. So again, thank you so much for being here with us, Mike. Um, this has been super great. Definitely check out his podcast. You guys, again, lots and lots, tons of episodes to listen to. Um, not all of them about nutrition either, but quite a bit of them are um, if you're interested in that aspect of health and wellness. But thank you guys for listening. And as always, go out there into the world, do all of the things, learn a system and make good choices. We'll be talking to you soon.